All right, welcome everyone to the now second Ben and Corey podcast. I'm Corey Novotny. And I'm Benjamin Carlson. Ben and I made our first episode last month where we talked about Jimmy Garoppolo, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the Winter Olympics, among other things. And we're finally back and ready to do this again. That's right, Corey. The first podcast is officially on iTunes, so all you Apple fans can also now find all our episodes on your podcast app. We hope to bring you our content on even more platforms going forward, but for now, let's get started on this episode. The new NFL League year is ready to start, and with that, the start of free agency. Based on what has already gone down this offseason via trades, we expect lots of player movement as all 32 franchises attempt to build Super Bowl caliber teams in the coming weeks. We'll talk about our favorite moves to this point and predict who else will be wearing a different uniform in 2018. The 2018 NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament field has been set, and we're very excited for college basketball to take over our lives for the next three weeks or at least until our brackets are busted by the end of this weekend. Ben and I give our takes on the teams to beat, the most tantalizing upset picks, and give you our expert tips on how to fill out your bracket. We'll also debut some new segments this week with Would You Rather and My Show, My Team. And in honor of college spring break season, we debate our favorite beach and island drinks in today's top five. All right, so let's get started with the NFL and let's talk trades because this has been one of the more exciting beginnings of the league year uh, because of trades. It seems like the GMs for these franchises may be playing a little bit more Madden uh, in the offseason and getting inspired to make big moves because I can't remember an offseason that has been this busy before free agency even starts. Uh, I mean, we got just headlines. Marcus Peters from the Chiefs traded to the Rams. Akib Talib traded from the Broncos to the Rams. Uh, they are soon to be losing Tremaine Johnson, but overall, huge upgrade for that secondary. Uh, Michael Bennett traded from the Seahawks to the Eagles. The And let's not forget that this all started with Alex Smith being traded to Washington uh, as, Patrick, as the Patrick Mahomes era starts to uh, take effect in uh, the, for Kansas City. But I think the while those were all a lot more motion in the NFL than we're used to before free agency, the Browns are the ones who are really making history uh, with some of these uh, really uh, just out of the blue trades. Trading for Tyrod Taylor, uh, trading a third round pick to the Bills to take in Tyrod Taylor, a quarterback who, you know, is is not definitely not a top tier quarterback, but definitely ready to be a starter and take over for the Browns, uh, as well as trading for the recently franchise tagged Jarvis Landry from the Dolphins, a I, I believe he has the most receptions uh, a wide receiver has ever had in his first four seasons. This was his fourth season. A, a, a receiver, a, just a receiving machine. Uh, and he, he, I know the Browns are always terrible, but it's tough to see a guy like Jarvis. Uh, it's it's tough to think that a guy like Jarvis Landry would go in there and play badly after what we've seen him do in an already bad team, the Dolphins. So just 
craziness to start to start off the league year. Yeah, I I cannot remember an off season where this much action has gone down before free agency even began. Uh, lots of trades. I remember when we first uh, did our podcast, we had Jimmy Garoppolo signing his contract. Uh, you had everything with um, the the Eagles winning the Super Bowl, the Patriots losing, Josh McDaniels. We thought that was a pretty crazy first two weeks. We had no idea what we were in store for. I think the Browns really grabbed headlines with new GM John Dorsey making uh, moves that are unprecedented for Cleveland in recent years. Still don't know how big Taylor, uh, Randall, and Landry are going to impact an 0-16 Browns team, but it certainly has people talking about them and thinking that they're moving in the right direction. Uh, And to me, I, I definitely, as a Steelers fan, will admit that I'm hoping that the Browns do not suddenly become a contender, but I can certainly see all these pieces coming together and Cleveland uh, at least you know pulling out some wins this year and maybe maybe sneaking up on some teams. Yes, I've I've heard so many people's hot take that the Browns will win a game this year, <laughs> which is ridiculous that that's even a, a thing to discuss. Uh, obviously, the Browns can only go up from where they're at right now, and I think these were pretty good moves to get there. I don't see Tyra Taylor as the answer for the Browns, but definitely a stopgap quarterback that should have them moving in the right direction, and hopefully, uh, you know, have the Browns in a good place when whatever quarterback the Browns draft in the first round this year is ready to start playing. Yeah, I, I definitely think that Taylor is a solid stopgap. He's a guy who can come in for a year or two, uh, hold his own in Cleveland, and we saw him have some success in Buffalo. He was good enough to get the Bills to the playoffs, only scored three points against Jackson on that playoff game, got benched during the season for Nathan Peterman. It was it's definitely was time for Taylor and the Bills to part ways. Uh, but I, I'm very curious how he does in Cleveland. And like you said, the Browns probably going to draft a quarterback, if not with the first pick, with the fourth pick. How long is Cleveland going to let Taylor be on the field before they turn over the reins to Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, or Sam Darnold? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I would say the Browns actually had a pretty decent offseason last year and then just totally blew it all year long. So this, obviously, you can't win the season in the offseason. you got to go out there and play football you know, for, the, for 16 games. So I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but you can take the low-hanging fruit and, assume that it, in, and think that it's safe to assume that Browns will win more games this coming season than they did <laughs> last season. Okay. Yes. Uh, moving forward, nowhere to go but up. Yes. Right. Right. And, and moving forward, let's talk about franchise tags because we've seen uh, a few of those as well. Uh, mainly just holding on to some of the more tantalizing potential free agents. Obviously, the Cowboys used theirs on their top pass rusher, Demarcus Lawrence. Uh, the Lions decided to hold on to another guy who was seemingly uh, potentially on the move that a lot of teams potentially would be willing to pay a lot of money for was Ezekiel Ansa. Uh, as we said before, Jarvis Landry was franchise tagged and then traded. So I think that was, uh, I think that works out for him. Just, just even though he's going to go play for the Browns, he's still getting a huge contract, at least for the coming year. And he potentially could be on the move 
next year. So I don't know how how long Jarvis Landry wants to be a Brown. Um, I always think about that when these guys, these good players, end up joining the Browns because the history is there, man. They are bad, and they have been bad. Uh, it's But eventually you think they've got to be able to be good, right? And then obviously the, the top, in my opinion, the most valuable guy who got franchise tag, Le'Veon Bell. Even if his franchise tag pay, uh, salary doesn't reflect him being the most valuable, I think that the Steelers being able to hold on to him is the, the has the most value for their team. Yeah, so Bell will be paid $14.5 million this year, which is... Six million more than Devontae Freeman, the second highest paid running back. And despite making all that money, uh, Bell is still not happy. Uh, last season, he sat out the entire offseason after getting the franchise sag. He wants a long-term deal. He wants that guaranteed money, especially at a position like running back. Uh, and to me, I, I fully understand why he would want that. But at the same time, I understand why the Steelers are hesitant. Because not only are they they facing a salary cap crunch with all the other star players on their team that they have locked up. But running back is a position where you see teams like the Chiefs and the Saints taking a third round pick on a running back and them turning into two of the best running backs in football last season in Kareem Hunt and Alvin Kamara. There are a lot of guys that you can just continuously uh, draft and have early success and then on to the next one, which is what the Steelers have with Le'Veon Bell. So I'm really curious how Pittsburgh handles that going forward because I really don't see them coming to an agreement based on the fact that the Steelers have already been willing to offer him as much as they have despite their their uh, salary cap issues and Bell still not being pleased. Yeah, it's, it's a tough situation because league-wide running backs are, I won't say undervalued, but they just they are too risky of an investment based on the physicality of the position. But you can't deny Le'Veon's impact on the game. So it's kind of a paradox because you, you can't invest that much money in a running back because mm. they, they might get injured. But at the same time, how can you not invest that much money in a player that is a game-changer like Le'Veon Bell? So I, I'm really excited to see... Uh, how this pans out long term I honestly don't think that he's a stealer his entire career I think that somebody out there is going to be willing to pay him a lot of money and whether that's worth it or not is up for debate but I don't see him and I don't know how the Steelers would be able to hold on to him forever no I I agree I think that uh, when it when push comes to shove someone is going to be willing to pay more money than the Steelers are offering uh, and to me, I, I think it's unfortunate because I think Bell is a great player, but he's a guy who plays 90, 95% of the team's snaps. Uh, he, he touches the ball a lot, whether it's as a running back um, or catching the ball. I'm not going to say as a wide receiver. One thing is, he is he's trying to be paid as a running back and a wide receiver. Yes, he had the 10th most catches in the league this year, but he was only 55th in yards. He was catching the ball out of the backfield. He was just catching it more than most running backs. I don't think that his numbers qualify him as a running back slash wide receiver. Uh, That being said, I do think that there are some teams who have a lot of cap space who could maybe take the gamble and pay him what he wants. And even if it's just maybe two more years out of the, the four or five he ends up getting of being this top running back that he is right now, I think he would be worth that. 
uh, just given the right financial situation and the right team. Right. And we just got to – I would just hope that he can get that while he is still young because running backs are not a commodity once they get older. Uh, very few running backs can keep it going late into their career. And while Le'Veon Bell has been an amazing running back, father time is undefeated. So the, every year that he takes a he gets franchise tagged, I think – takes a little bit of value off of him so but but it's an interesting situation altogether so we'll see how that goes i want to move forward and let's talk about free agency uh which is about to start on wednesday so we're, it's coming up it's very exciting it's like christmas honestly for nfl teams with a lot of money because once it gets started free agency frenzy goes and you just get to see guys getting bought up all over the place and i have a few predictions that I think uh, would be interesting to see and potentially likely. So first off, Teddy Bridgewater is right right now coming out of that quarterback conundrum going on in Minnesota. And the Cardinals are a very quarterback needy team right now. I could see them taking a chance on a guy like Teddy Bridgewater and potentially having it pay off big. He's coming off injury. He's unproven in the pros. And the Cardinals have no answers at quarterback. So I, I think that that would be an interesting signing for them. Yeah, I I think that Bridgewater is an interesting situation given that the Vikings seemed ready to make him their franchise quarterback before his injury. And post-injury... They trade for Sam Bradford, they sign Case Keenum, Bradford gets hurt, Keenum comes in, and he leads him to 13 victories and uh, gets him to the NFC Championship game. So Bridgewater, all of a sudden, even when he's healthy, he's on the bench. And I'm really curious whether a team is willing to pay him as a starter. I think at the very least he'll get that opportunity somewhere, whether it's as a bridge quarterback or to come in and compete with someone. Arizona, I think, is a, an interesting situation because I think that the Cardinals, when it's all said and done, are going to end up with one of the lesser top quarterbacks on the free agent market. Um, but I, I, I do think that Bridgewater in Arizona would be an intriguing fit. Uh, mo- moving forward, but staying on the Vikings, I think Jarek McKinnon is one of the dark horse good running backs in free agency this year and i like his chances of signing with the 49ers the 49ers have a lot of money but john lynch has at least in his first year as a gm has been shown to be pretty frugal and Jarek mckinnon is a value player that i think could slide in and take over for the uh not necessarily the carlos hyde role per se but to join that committee backfield that they're building in san francisco and uh, d- deliver a lot of value. He he came out as the backup when to uh, Latavius Murray when uh, Dalvin uh, Cook. Dalvin Cook, excuse me. Yes, Dalvin Dalvin Cook went down. But it, as if you played any fantasy, uh, you'll know that Jerick McKinnon ended up being pretty valuable back there, almost more valuable than Latavius Murray. I'm not sure who finished with more points, but Jerick McKinnon contributed a lot more than people expected. I, I think he could find a spot in the 49ers backfield. Uh, just rattling off a few more here. Sam Bradford, I think that he has a good chance of landing with the Bills. I think the ban- the Bills make bad decisions a lot, and I think <laughs> that they'll take Sam Bradford and be mediocre at best with him. Uh, even though I like that defense, I just it seems like the 
the Bills. <laughs> I, I I think I may just be hating on the Bills here, but Sam Bradford is potential is probably on the move. The Bills just got rid of Tyrod Taylor. Sam Bradford has proven that he can come in and be a starter, a good starter, uh, right off the bat. But ultimately, I don't I don't like it as much as I think it is likely. Yeah, I, I do think Bradford of the Bills is a, a very likely scenario. Um, I think Bradford's the kind of guy who's going to get a one-year prove-it deal, uh, and I think Buffalo makes sense, uh, especially given today that they traded Cordy Glenn to the Bengals in a way to move up to the 12th pick in the draft. So they're trying to position themselves to be able to take one of the quarterbacks in this draft class. So uh, given if they end up staying in the 12th range, it's probably either... Uh, Teddy, er, not Teddy Bridgewater, Lamar Jackson or uh, Baker Mayfield. So my expectation is that the Bills will want another guy who can step in for a year or two before handing over the reins to that person. Uh, and Bradford definitely seems to make sense. I agree, Bradford. He's had his injury history. He did play well in 2016 with the Vikings, uh, despite the Vikings not being as good in 2016 as they were in 2017 with Keenum. Uh, I'm very interested to see if Bradford can put together a healthy season uh, and kind of revitalize his career because he was the number one overall pick once upon a time. But I I do think that any quarterback who ends up in Buffalo as a stopgap to to believe in their chances of being uh, a franchise saver in that organization is a little far-fetched. Hand it to McCoy. That's what I. That's my advice to anybody yeah. who ends up in Buffalo. Okay, uh, moving forward, another free agent, Muhammad Wilkerson of the Jets. I've heard rumors that he's been talking with Washington. I personally think that Muhammad Wilkerson is past his prime. He and I think that the. I, I think that Washington could potentially just get uh, another solid player, and hopefully they don't overpay for him. Uh, I, I think that he's a starter, but I. I I think there's a chance he demands more based on his name value uh, than he's really worth. And the Washington Redskins have a history of overpaying for defensive linemen. So I I think that that just fits. I I can definitely see Wilkerson ending up in Washington. Um, I think that another team to watch for in terms of Wilkerson and some of the other uh, defensive free agents who may be willing to settle for that one-year prove-it deal uh, could be the Green Bay Packers. They're a team that, in my opinion, was one of, if not the best teams in the NFC before Aaron Rodgers got hurt last season. I think if they can beef up their defense a little bit with some of those guys on the free agent market, that they can maybe get on little cheaper contracts um, if it's just for a short commitment. Uh, I think Wilkerson could could make an impact in Green Bay. I, I think that if Wilkerson goes to Green Bay, then I think he'll do... Well, because I, I think Green Bay makes very smart choices in free agency. The the Packers have so much of their roster is uh, players that they have drafted themselves, and the free agents that they bring in are contributors. So I think that if he does sign with the Packers, that indicates something that the Packers general manager sees in him. But again, uh, I personally think Muhammad Wilkerson is a little bit past his prime. Just two more free agents I want to go over. Tyler Eifert, the guy who's been injured for a long time, but his future is a little bit in doubt. But I recently saw a Twitter thread uh, of retweets from Tyler Eifert's account, 
and he is a, about as uh, red-blooded American as you get. Uh, he has he actually took a picture with then candidate Donald Trump during his uh, presidential campaign. And you know who else is a big fan of President Number Forty Five is Robert Kraft. I predict Tyler Eifert joins the Patriots this season in the wake of the potential retiring of Rob Gronkowski based on all of his serious injuries. Tyler Eifert, a very talented tight end. Uh, I think if he can return to football, New England is an excellent landing spot for him to prove his worth because how better? What, what's a better situation than having Tom Brady throw you the ball? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think even if Gronk does come back and doesn't retire, like some of the rumors that have been floating around, uh, New England has always been a team to like to have that second tight end. Uh, Martellus Bennett certainly helped them, and he they tried to bring him back after he was released by the Packers. His injuries were just too much. So I think it would be intriguing to see if the Patriots do make a play at another tight end, and Eifert could certainly be right up their alley. Last one is Eric Reed, safety from the 49ers. A solid contributor since he has been a rookie. In fact, he picked off Aaron Rodgers in his first game uh, in the NFL. He is going to be a free agent, and while I think that he is valuable enough to get a decent contract to join a team that has a need at the position... I personally believe that his activism off the field will prevent him from finding the type of deal that he's looking for. We've seen what Colin Kaepernick's activism has done to his prospects for joining teams. And while Eric Reed is not as well known for his activism, he was basically Colin Kaepernick's right-hand man and the stand-in for Colin Kaepernick once he left football. So while I think Eric Reed can demand uh, the, the type of money that he deserves based on his play, I believe that his activism will get in the way based on what we've seen from the league. And I predict he'll go right back to the 49ers. They were fine with having him. And uh, I think that that will, might turn out as a deal for them to be able to get him with less competition. Would you be happy with him coming back to San Francisco? I would. Uh, based on uh, Eric Reed was drafted as a free safety. His coverage skills leave a little bit to be desired. But he hits as hard as the best safeties that hit hard in this league and i'm i'm happy to have him uh, you know playing that strong safety role in the cover three secondary that the niners run so i i think that would be nice for the niners to have him back uh although we do have adrian colbert who's on the rise who potentially could play that role as well but all things considered it would be great to have eric reed back especially if it's for less money than he's worth because he doesn't have uh, any free market I, I definitely think that Reed is a, a solid player. Uh, you do bring up a solid point with the uh, activism that he's been a part of. The Houston Texans have already come out and said they're going to try to avoid players who protested the national anthem, and I'm sure they won't be the only team. So it, it is definitely going to be something to watch to see what, what Reed is able to command on the open market in terms of uh, interest and ultimately uh, contracts. Agreed. And, and it's it's... it's... Interesting, too, because similar to Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed is not the top player at his position. It's not even close. He's good. He definitely belongs in the league, but it's not like he's going to turn your whole franchise around. Uh, so, yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on. But with that, I think we should wrap up the NFL segment and head on to March Madness. That's right. It is officially the start of the most exciting three weeks in sports 
with Selection Sunday wrapping up yesterday. We had the full 68-team field, uh, and we found out in, uh, quite frankly, the, the worst Selection Sunday show that I have ever seen. They decided to change things up by, instead of revealing the bracket one at a time like they always do, uh, announcing the entire field one by one in alphabetical order and then telling you where they're seated really took away the suspense of finding out which bubble teams got in the field seeing all the the reactions the, the happiness from from the ones who got in and the disappointment from those who were left out uh, but that's over now we can start looking forward to the bracket and i will just note that we are recording this on monday night so this is before any of the play-in games start uh, let alone the rest of the tournament. So these are very early reactions to the field and early predictions that we're about to make. But but no less valuable, and uh, you should trust our expert opinion completely, 100%. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so uh, before we start to talk about who got into the field, there is definitely a lot of teams that feel like they should be in there, and certainly some that a little questionable resume that the committee let in. Uh, I think the, the, the three biggest names that uh, fans and media alike are not a fan of getting into the field are Oklahoma, uh, Syracuse, and Arizona State. While there are a number of teams that got left out of the field, like Notre Dame, St. Mary's, Oklahoma State, Louisville, USC, Middle Tennessee, Baylor, the list goes on. Uh, so, Ben, who are some of the, the teams that didn't get in the field that you think maybe were a little more deserving some, than some of those who did barely get in? Well, for me, I, I think there was one glaring snub this year, and that was USC out of the Pac-12. They, they finished second in the Pac-12. But there, I, I read an interesting article about the FBI probe into college basketball. And it turns out that USC assistant coach Tony Bland was arrested in September on bribery charges. And there's a common thread that some of these teams that were overlooked for this tournament are also some of the teams that were investigated by the FBI. So I think that even though there's some shadiness inside of the USC organization, the team did enough to earn a spot in the tournament this year. It's just unfortunate that these outside influences obviously you want to have the you want the game to be clean you don't want people paying you don't want people breaking the rules i should say but it's just disappointing that it's going to cost them a trip to the tournament yeah i agree i think usc finishing second in the pac-12 to me they're the most egregious snub uh, this year along with usc louisville and oklahoma state are two of the schools that um, have been at the center of the FBI allegation. Oklahoma State also had an assistant head coach arrested back in September, while Louisville, of course, uh, Rick Pitino lost his job before the season, and they lost their 2013 national championship officially according to the record books uh, just a few weeks ago. So that is an interesting thing, how some of these teams that were left out of the field were centered around the FBI allegations, I don't know if that has anything to do with them not getting in, but it's certainly alarming, especially for a team like USC who finished second in their conference while UCLA and Arizona State finished fourth and ninth in the Pac-12 respectively. 
Um, but let's move on and talk about who some of our favorites to win and some other contenders that we're looking at. So in terms of the number one seeds, you have Virginia, Villanova, Kansas, and Xavier. Virginia has had a history of not meeting expectations under head coach Tony Bennett. In 2016, they were a number one seed, lost in the Elite Eight. In other years, they've been a high seed. They haven't even made it that far. Villanova, of course, won the national championship in 2016, but in 2014, 2015, and 2017, they were upset in the second round as either a one or two seed. Uh, Kansas has had a history of dominating the Big 12. They've been hit or miss in the tournament. Last year, they lost in the Elite Eight to Oregon. They have not uh, made it to the Final Four since 2012 when they lost the national championship game. Um, and they have not won at all since 2008, back when Mario Chalmers hit the uh, three-pointer with a second left against Memphis before beating him in overtime. And then finally, Xavier, uh, their first time as a number one seed. They don't have a huge history of tournament success. Last season, as an 11 seed, they made a run to the Elite Eight, but two years ago as a two seed, they lost in the second round. So it's, it's a really interesting field this year uh, in that the one seeds aren't they're dominant this year, but they all have their question marks in terms of tournament success. And I think that really opens up the field as we we take a look at some of the other teams in the bracket. Yeah, agreed. I, I personally think this is one of the good years for Villanova. I think of the number one seeds, they're my favorite. But agreed, there, there's a lot of opportunity for some of the lower seeds to compete this year. Yeah, and I, I think... As we we go down the bracket, uh, a team that I'm going to throw out, not necessarily as a sleeper pick because they did enter the season as one of the favorites. Uh, they were just plagued by uh, early losses and injuries, suspensions, and ultimately their head coach being centered around uh, the FBI allegations. It's Arizona. They're the four seed in the South region. DeAndre Ayton is arguably the best player in the country. He could very easily be the number one overall pick in the NBA draft this year. Uh, I like their chances to make the Final Four. I think that they can take down Virginia and whoever else comes out of uh, the, the bottom half of that region. I'm not particularly in love with Cincinnati or Tennessee. I could see the South getting a little crazy, maybe having, as, as far as to say, a double-digit seed in the Elite Eight. Um, but I, I do think that Arizona uh, is going to end up in the final four out of that region. Uh, as we, we look at some of the other regions, uh, I agree with you. I think Villanova, it, this is going to be one of their great years. I like them to make the final four. Um, I don't think that the East region is particularly uh, scary for them. Uh, I think that Purdue is a team that started off great, showed some weaknesses later in the year. Ultimately, they made it to the Big Ten Tournament Championship, lost to Michigan. Uh, I can see Purdue going on a run, getting to the Final Four, and I can also see them being upset as early as the second round. Uh, and then when we look ahead at the South region, uh, Kansas is a team that started off slow by their standards, the most of the Big 12 season, there was a thought that they were going to lose their record 13 straight uh, Big 12 regular season titles. 
However, they finished the season strong and won both the regular season and the Big 12 Tournament Championship. Uh, I think that they're going to be a tough team to beat. And Duke and Michigan State are two teams that we should really be watching for. I think that Michigan State uh, entered the season with higher expectations than they finished, but as a three seed, they're arguably the best three seed in the tournament. And Duke, of course, is you know led by Coach Krzyzewski. They are always in the mix. Seems like every year they're either bounced early or they win the national championship. So I'm really curious to see how far they can get. And as for the West region, Xavier, number one seed. I don't know if they're the favorites in that region. I don't think that they're going to win. I don't know if they're going to even make it past the Sweet 16, uh, let alone get to the Final Four. I think UNC and Michigan are the two best teams in that region. And Gonzaga, the defending runner-up, is a team that could certainly uh, pull off some, some big upsets and get back to the Final Four. Yeah, agreed. I think Gonzaga will be back for revenge, but I uh, honestly don't know enough about the team specifically to know exactly how far they go, but just after the finish they had last year, I think they're hungry. So uh, on the flip side, in terms of some of the the Cinderella teams that we can look at, you know, every year it seems like there's that one team that makes that run out of nowhere. Last year, South Carolina Gamecocks, number seven seed in the East region, upset Duke in the second round, ultimately made it to the final four where they lost to Gonzaga in the semifinals. Uh, this year, I think there, there are a handful of teams that have that potential. Uh, I think the two lower-seeded teams that everyone is talking about are Loyola Chicago and New Mexico State. So 5-12 upset, everyone tries to nail that. That's the big upset that every bracket expert will tell you about. And considering that New Mexico State is facing Clemson, I, I would love to see them finally get their first tournament win this year after starting 0-13 all-time in tournament play. Uh, and as for some of the lower-seeded teams, I think the winner of the Nevada-Texas matchup has a chance to not only beat Cincinnati in the second round, but ultimately uh, knock off Tennessee as well and make a surprise run to the Elite Eight or potentially beyond. So that's where I'm looking in terms of the the lower-seeded team to, to make a, a deep run. I like a team from Nebraska called Creighton. And honestly, not that long ago, I didn't even know Creighton existed, although they've, it's not unusual to have them in the tournament. But they beat Villanova this season, and I'm very hot on Villanova right now. And I think that a team that can go toe-to-toe with a team like Villanova, I know Creighton isn't perfect. They've lost some games since then. But I think that that game proved that when, they, when they're when they on, they have the potential to contend with the best. And I like they're an eight seed. Somebody's I think there's going to be a Cinderella in here somewhere, and my pick is Creighton. There, there's always a Cinderella. Uh, Creighton... Is, is in the South region, so if they survive Kansas State in the first round, which has an intriguing storyline that hasn't really been talked about, Marcus Foster, uh, Creighton guard, former Kansas State standout, uh, transfer to Creighton, he gets to face his former school in the first round. And I think if Creighton wins that, I could easily see them knocking off UVA. Virginia is a very defensive-oriented team. They have some star players, 
but their their offense has has not at least it's not at the same level as their defensive play. So if they go up against a team that is able to score the ball, it will be interesting if they can keep it up. Uh, I personally think Virginia will be able to survive Creighton before ultimately losing to Arizona. But I could certainly see Virginia, of all the one seeds, being the most likely to get knocked off in the first weekend. So as for our final four predictions, uh, I've already kind of talked a little bit about mine, but I'm going with Arizona, the four seed, to win the South. I like UNC, the defending national champs, to come out of the West. And then Villanova and Kansas, the one seed in the East and the Midwest, to hold true in their regions and make it to San Antonio. Wow, and we actually didn't discuss our Final Four before coming on here, but actually three of mine are exactly the same. I have UNC, Villanova, and Kansas. Not a big surprise, but like I said, I, I like my Cinderella here. I have Creighton also in the Final Four. So that That is a, a bold pick, but hey, last year you picked the South Carolina Gamecocks to win the national championship, mostly because you're, you were a student at the school and obviously they were your number one team, but they shocked the world and were actually able to make it to the Final Four. Uh, Listen, as, when you know, you know. As for me, uh, I am a, I've been a huge North Carolina fan my entire life. Uh, whenever the Tar Heels do well, I have a great bracket. Whenever the Tar Heels don't win the national championship, I don't pick the winner. Uh, the only exception to that was Louisville in 2013, and as of a couple weeks ago, that never happened. Uh, Louisville is not the national champion, so you can scratch that one off my record. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pick my favorite team, North Carolina, to win it all and uh, get revenge against Villanova in the national championship. Mostly, I think that's because they are my team, but at the same time, in a year where I don't know if there's a true top team, and considering that last year, I really didn't think North Carolina was that good and they did win it all, uh, I'm going to pick the Tar Heels to win back-to-back. I, For me, I've got Villanova ending the Cinderella story over Creighton in the in the championship. So even though Creighton knocked them off in the regular season and that's the reason why you believe in them, you still have Villanova uh, taking them down and winning it all. Villanova has a history of being uh, winners, and I think that they learn from their mistakes. I think that Creighton's di- win over them means a lot, and obviously this isn't, I'm not Nostradamus. I could also easily see Creighton coming away with it, but if I have to choose, I'm going to go with Villanova. Now, that would actually be an, an interesting national championship because 1985, the first ever tournament to have 64 teams in the field, uh, there were two Big East teams in the final. Number one, Georgetown, led by Patrick Ewing, an eight-seeded Villanova. Villanova upset Georgetown, one of the biggest upsets in college basketball history. So if your Final Four holds true, you also have Villanova there. The only difference is Villanova is a one-seed this time, and they knock off the eight-seed Big East rival. Uh, but that would certainly be a, an intriguing storyline if, if it does come to that. Uh, so... In terms of the advice that we can give uh, as tournament experts, as we like to think. Yes. So let's kind of talk about just some tips because, you know, if you come into this having no idea what you're doing, I think it's easy to just pick a lot of the top seeds to advance. 
And that's an issue because it's madness for a reason. They don't call it March Madness if it's always the best teams winning every single game. There's going to be upsets. So uh, we're just going to give you some, some uh, advice in terms of how you should go about filling out your bracket. So I'll start things off, and the one seed has never lost to a 16 seed in yeah since 1985 now. So this is now the 33rd or 34th tournament that we've had a one versus 16 matchup in the first round. I think everyone knows don't pick a 16 to beat a one. It is obviously possible, but we have yet to see it happen. Uh, but in terms of the one seeds. How far should you pick them to go? Well, in 2008, all four number one seeds made the final four, and that is the only time since 1985 that's happened. In fact, in both 2006 and 2011, no number one seeds reached the final four. Three of them got there in 2015, two in 2017, two in 2009, one every other year since 2006. So, Pick one, maybe two to make it to the final four, but leave it at that. You don't want to go crazy with one seeds because some of them are going to lose, whether it's in the second round, the Elite Eight. They're not all going to make it this year. For uh, A tip that I have is while I think Cinderella's are the way to win your bracket, you can't obviously pick, again, you can't pick the ones to win everything, but don't let your Cinderella's stay in the mix for too long. Get those, get those upsets. Let them, let them approach the final four. But there, there's only been four double-digit seed teams that have ever made the final four, uh, and one of them was Syracuse in 2016. So while I, I encourage anybody to be uh, to root for the underdogs, I do it all the time. My bracket is full of upsets. But just know when it's time to rein those in and go for the more likely uh, outcomes later on in the tournament. In terms of some of the other top-seeded teams, two seeds are certainly popular championship choices, but they often have at least one or two that struggle to advance past the first weekend. In fact, it hasn't happened since 2009 that all four number two seeds reached the Sweet 16. Just last year in 2017, both Duke and Louisville lost in the second round. So, when it comes to the two seeds, take a look at who you think has a chance of being upset early. This year, I think Cincinnati is a team that could fall. I could easily see Purdue or even one of North Carolina and Duke failing to survive that first weekend. And I, I guess just my last tip would be Pick a blue team to win the whole thing because apparently Louisville is the only team that wasn't blue or doesn't have blue in its school colors to win in the past 14 seasons. And technically, like we just said, they didn't even win it. So <laughs> if you're, make sure that the winner has blue in their school colors. That's uh, actually an interesting fact. I did not know that until just now, but uh, looking back on it, it makes sense. Uh, having North Carolina and Duke and UConn wearing blue certainly uh, helps that because those are three teams that have won multiple championships in that time. 
anyway, just a couple other tips that I have. The playing game, first instituted in 2011, these were the committee's four teams that they thought least deserved to get in the tournament, or at least the lowest ranked teams. However, every single year since 2011, at least one play-in team has advanced to the second round, pulled off that first round upset. In fact, the first year, uh, VCU made it all the way to the Final Four as an 11 seed, winning five tournament games to get there instead of the usual four. And some other stats, a seven seed or lower has made it to the Elite Eight every year since 2011. In fact, three of them got there in 2014. Look to some of those lower seeds in the bracket who you think can pull off a couple of upsets, sometimes even benefiting from other teams pulling off upsets in cases when you have like a 10 seed knocking off an 11 seed in the Sweet 16. Uh, so don't go too crazy with your upsets, but definitely try to find that one team who's going to totally shock the world and advance to at least the Elite Eight. And finally, while no 13, 14, or 15 seed won a game in 2017, all three of those seeds had a winner in both 2013 and 2016, and two number 14 seeds won in 2015. Not necessarily advocating pulling or you know shooting for one of these huge upsets, but it's something to keep in mind that every year some team that nobody expects to lose in the first round loses in the first round. So be a little careful before picking one of those uncertain teams to advance super far in your tournament bracket. So uh, now that we've given you some advice, told you who we think is going to win it all, and broken down the bracket, let's move on to our first new segment that we're introducing this week, and that is Would You Rather. Yes, so I guess we'll start off with the first one. Would you rather sign a long-term contract with the Cleveland Browns or play for any other team on the franchise tag? So Jarvis Landry was franchised by the Dolphins and traded to the Browns, reportedly discussing a long-term deal with Cleveland that is likely to happen. I think Cleveland is in a position where they can be a, not going to say a contending team, but a competent team in the coming years. Uh, as for whether or not I would, I would commit to a long-term contract with them, Probably not. They haven't made the playoffs since 2002. I would rather just stick it out with the franchise tag with the one team who isn't willing to commit to me long term, and then hopefully the next offseason get a chance to actually negotiate a deal with whoever, not just the Browns that I got traded to. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I can't. If I was a football player and I'm out there risking my body, my mental health, I'm certainly not going to do it in uh, the old orange and brown. A franchise tag is a lot of money, and I know it's it's not it's not long term, but you get a lot of money in one year. And uh, to be playing on the franchise tag, you're obviously a good player. So I think it's an easy choice here. Go with the franchise tag. All right. So the next, would you rather? Would you rather have your team lose in the NCAA tournament on a buzzer beater, or miss the tournament entirely? I mean, this is this is a tough one because it's it's you're kind of balancing a 
a heartbreaking moment versus a disappointing season. And while a disappointing season may not hurt as much because you're kind of spreading it out, I think that making the tournament itself is something to be proud of, especially coming from a school that doesn't always make the tournament. I think that at least being in the excitement is a lot more fun than... Uh, I think the fun that you get from being involved in the excitement is worth the disappointment of uh, a soul-crushing buzzer beater to take you out. Yeah, this is a question where you were basically saying, would you rather have your heart ripped out by the selection committee or have your heart ripped out by a 6'4 guard who has no NBA career and made a shot that will probably be one of the, if not the highlight of his life? And uh, (laughs) so I think... If it happens in, say, the Sweet 16 or the Elite 8, you made a nice little run. Definitely great being in the tournament. The first round, uh, you know, at that point, is it's almost like, yeah, maybe we should have just gone to the NIT. Uh, but I, I think depending on the context in that one is how I'll answer it. I think if, if, you, if you won a few games and, yeah, you can lose on the buzzer beater, it is a little more crushing at that point to make it that far. But I think if it's a matter of having everything ripped apart from you right away and, you know, at that point, uh, it's not fun to have your only experience be losing on that deep three-pointer your first game. Uh, All right, next one. Would you rather watch any tournament where Tiger Woods is near the top of the leaderboard or watch a major tournament where Tiger Woods isn't even playing? So... Tiger Woods this weekend at the Valspar Championship was in contention the whole weekend. Uh, Didn't come out on top, but he made it exciting all the way to the final hole on Sunday. And Tiger Woods has not been the same player he was before his injury in 2008, his uh, fateful night, uh, the night after Thanksgiving of 2009, when all of the uh, personal matters in his life came out. He's been unable to stay healthy. And to see him back on the course is is pretty exciting for any casual golf fan because Tiger Woods brings viewers. If it's a major tournament, uh, you, for me as someone who enjoys playing golf but not as much watching other people play golf, I it pretty much has to be you know, the Masters, the U.S. Open, the Open Championship for me to want to watch. In an ideal world, Tiger Woods is going to be at the top of the leaderboard. Uh, next month during the Masters, uh, but we'll we'll see if he's able to continue that success. Uh, for me, I think I would still rather watch uh, a major tournament, but it's tough for me because I I would like to see Tiger Woods get some wins, maybe get back into it. Uh, is at this point, I don't think he's going to catch Jack Nicklaus's record for most major tournament wins, but. It, it would certainly be cool to see Tiger pull out a victory uh, in the coming weeks or months. This one's an easy one for me because I am about as casual a golf fan as you can possibly be, and I'm a sucker for nostalgia. So seeing Tiger Woods near the top get me feeling like it was, uh, you know, 2000 and, well, the two, the, the 2009. I don't remember when he was really good, but when <laughs> I was in grade school, he was good. And... Uh, I really don't I really don't watch golf. So having the star power that Tiger brings to the screen would at least get me to uh, pay attention for a little while. 
Yeah, it was absolutely fair. I still remember Tiger winning the 2008 U.S. Open on a, a banged-up leg, and uh, I, at the time, I had no idea that 10 years later, I'll still be waiting for him to win his next major tournament. And so for our final Would You Rather, would you rather get paid $17.4 million to play for the Kansas City Royals or get paid $6.5 million to play for the Kansas City Royals? Hmm, this sounds like a trick question, Corey. <laughs> so, so Royals third baseman Mike Moustakis, a Scott Boris uh, client, turned down a $17.4 million tender from Kansas City at the start of the baseball offseason, electing to test his value on the free agent market. And his value uh, was not where he wanted it to be, not where agent Scott Boris told him it would be. Ultimately, he's back in Kansas City for only $6.5 million. He does have a chance to earn a couple extra million in incentives and has a 15 15 million dollar option for next year but obviously you would rather make 11 million dollars more to play for the same team fire your agent <laughs> it's uh it's it's really interesting how this baseball offseason played out and there, there's a lot of rumors as to what it is i think it's as simple as the fact that there are a lot of bigger names on the market next offseason so teams aren't trying to break the bank on some of these guys that were available when uh, some of the names like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado come on uh, the market a year from now. So, now it's time for a segment from last week. And right now it is, it's college spring break season. Uh, ben, you and I are graduated. We are not on spring break. You, uh, we both are, are missing out on some of the, the fun times that our, our friends who are still in college are enjoying. But... Uh, for today's top five, we're going to discuss some of our favorite beach and island drinks. Not two, not three, not four. Top five, top five, top five. That's right, Corey. Even though we may not be enjoying spring break right now, we're out there working hard, earning a salary so we can afford to drink something a little nicer uh, <laughs> whenever we do end up going on some sort of beach vacation trip. And I'll start with my number five with a drink that I feel like I don't get to drink often enough, uh, which is a nice uh, mojito. I, uh, I I think that being at the beach or being on an island is a special occasion, and for special occasions, I occasionally like to pull out a special drink, and that's uh, a mojito. Not my favorite drink of all time, but definitely one that I've only had uh, in this type of beach island tropical vacation situation. I was very tempted to put mojito in my top five. Uh, I, it just barely missed the cut. For me and I, my number five is a drink that really you can have it anytime. You don't have to be on, on a beach to drink a mimosa. But if you're on a tropical vacation, it's 10 a.m. Whether you wake up hungover or you feel great and you want to feel even better to start your day, mimosa is a great drink to just have out on the beach, you know, maybe on your your porch, uh, just looking out at the water. I think mimosa is great in any situation, but uh, and that's part of the reason why it's only number five on my list because it's not just a beach island drink. But uh, big fan of mimosas, love love champagne and orange juice. Such a simple but great combination. Agreed. Simple but great is a great way to put it. 
So for my number four, I went with the Tequila Sunrise. And the Tequila Sunrise, actually, I, I it's not even a drink I really keep in the memory banks as far as drinks that I get, because I get it so infrequently. But if you want to drink a lot of alcohol quickly, because it tastes really good, a Tequila Sunrise is the way to go. You can make it pretty potent, but that orange juice and grenadine syrup in there uh, really masks anything that doesn't taste sugary and amazing and uh, can turn you can get turned up very quickly with some tequila sunrises yeah tequila is certainly uh, not the the most tasty liquor but when, when you add the the tequila sunrise combo uh, the orange juice and the grenadine it, it really is a very very solid drink uh, for me, my number four, the margarita. It's a classic. It's another tequila one. Whether it's your your simple lime or you you get one of the the fun concoction flavors, margaritas great. Uh, really, margaritas are associated with being outdoors, the warm weather. You know, whether you're somewhere in the Caribbean, Mexico, uh, even the just on a beach anywhere in the United States, uh, margarita is always a fun one to break out. Um, whether it's purely from scratch or using some of the margarita, margarita mix that you can buy at the store, frozen or just on ice, it's it's hard to go wrong with a margarita. Agreed. Another solid choice. Uh, you can't. You you I, you're going with the uh, old reliables here, and uh, I, I agree with their inclusion on this list. Now bouncing back to my list. I went with your number five choice, the mimosa, because while I agree that it's not really for special occasions, in my experience, I don't think I'm ever not down for a mimosa, which is why it's all the way up here at number three. A drink I can have when I'm getting, when I'm drinking before a football game, but also if I'm trying to celebrate the fact that I've got my uh, toes in the water and my uh, behind in the sand. Yeah, I, I, I can't hate on you putting mimosa at number three. And for me, my number three is a drink that you also have on your list, Tequila Sunrise. Already went into that. Just a great drink. I actually had some last weekend, um, which even though I wasn't on the beach, I was outside. So it's somewhat counted, but that really makes me want to have one in a more tropical setting in the near future. Agreed. Agreed. Moving on, my number two pick is the Margarita. And I, I pronounce it like that very intentionally because when I'm on the playa in California con, with my abuela Gloria, I want to make sure that I'm drinking a margarita. It's my heritage. It's a drink that I've never turned down in my life when someone else has prepared it for me. And uh, it, 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 it has a special place in my heart and in my liver. Margarita makes the number two spot on my list. Definitely a great choice. Now, my number two is one that, uh, not a super popular drink as far as I know. Uh, the only time I've had it has been with my, my parents. My dad loves to make it when we're at the beach, and it's a banana monkey. Uh, so the, the, the essentials for the banana monkey, you have you know, banana, chocolate syrup, but in terms of the actual alcohol content, uh, you're, you're throwing in some kind of coffee liqueur like Kahlua. Uh, different recipes call for vodka or rum. And 
having some kind of a coconut cream uh, just to to give it that that finishing touch. Uh, for me, banana monkeys are delicious. I always look forward to uh, my dad breaking out the blender when we're at our beach house in the summer and uh, just sipping on those all afternoon. So for me, the banana monkey comes in at number two. If you never had one, highly recommend it if you're a fan of banana and chocolate. I have never even heard of it, but that sounds amazing. I I commend you for br- uh, bringing this uh, to the list because I think that that's something I'm going to seek out in the future and maybe give it a try. But this next drink that's on my list and is also on your list, I think most people that have tried beach islands or tropical drinks uh, at all have heard of and tried the classic pina colada. Of course, you and I both have this at number one. I have loved pina coladas since my first cruise. I was only in seventh grade. Of course, it was non-alcoholic, but uh, I just love the blend of the pineapple and the, the coconut flavor, splashing a little rum when you're 21, and it's it's a, a delicious concoction, and I, I love making them myself, and I am very happy that you also have them at the top of your list. Nothing says I'm on vacation, like drinking a pina colada. It, uh, even when you're not on vacation, you're, tra- you're temporarily <laughs> transported with every sip. Yeah, it's, it's certainly the, the classic, the go-to drink, the first one you get on the cruise ship, the first one you get when you get off the plane and get to the resort. Uh, pina colada can never go wrong with that, and that is why it is both of ours, and I'm sure a lot of listeners' favorite beach or island drink. So now, uh, as we get ready to wrap up our show, we have another segment that we are debuting, and it is called My Show, My Team. And in this segment, Ben and I both have a topic where we are going to say as much as we want, completely uninterrupted, just a chance for us to uh, express our feelings about one of the teams that we personally root for. So to get things started, Ben is going to lead off by talking about a player from his biggest rival signing with his favorite team. Let's send you down to the field and Aaron Andrews. Joe, thank you so much. Richard, let me ask you the final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Change is happening in the NFC West. The Seahawks are crumbling, the Rams are actually good, and for the first time since the end of the Jim Harbaugh era, the 49ers are on the rise. Since the arrival of quarterback Wonderkind and amateur male model Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers have gone from out-of-control dumpster fire to promising contender seemingly overnight. After joining a pathetic 1-10 squad and leading them to a 6-10 finish, Jimmy G has changed how people see the 49ers as a franchise. Add in the culture makeover brought in by the John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan administration, and for the first time in years, free agents actually want to come to San Francisco. But even with all that, the last thing 49ers fans expected was to attract the attention of free agent Richard Sherman. 
Richard Sherman has been a menace in the lives of 49ers fans everywhere for years now. The Seahawks have won 11 of the last 15 games against the 49ers since 2011, when Sherman joined the league, including winning the last nine consecutively. Sherman really made a name for himself with his infamous sorry receiver-like Crabtree rant after savagely denying the 49ers from a second consecutive trip to the Super Bowl with a pass deflection that led to a game-winning interception in the 2013 NFC Championship game. Colin Kaepernick doubted Sherman, and it, was, and it cost his team a trip to the Super Bowl. And maybe more, as the 49ers unraveled the following season and descended into the years of irrelevance that would follow. But that's all in the past. Times have changed, and Richard Sherman is no longer viewed as a necessary part of the Seattle Seahawks defense. Coming off of a serious Achilles injury he suffered during the 2017 season, the Seahawks felt like they couldn't invest in a damaged player that's nearing his 30th birthday. So they released him. Now it's time for the Seahawks to see what happens when you doubt Richard Sherman. Soon after his release, Richard was wined and dined by 49ers head coach Kyle Shanahan. The next day, he had been cleared by 49ers team doctors, and by the end of the day, he had signed a three-year, $39 million contract with a $5 million signing bonus. Social media erupted. Richard Sherman and the Seahawks have been almost synonymous for the last several years, and to see him join his rival just days after his tenure with the Seahawks came to an end was simply jarring. But it made perfect sense to Richard Sherman. The 49ers defense is coordinated by Robert Sala, a guy who runs the exact same defensive scheme as the Seahawks. The 49ers defense is young, and while it has a lot of potential, it is in desperate need of veteran leadership. Sherman doesn't feel like he's past his prime, and he's ready to prove it to the people that decided he wasn't worth the money on his contract. Richard Sherman is number one in picks, passes defended, and opposing quarterback completion percentage since he entered the league in 2011. He believes he's still at the top of his game, and I can't wait to see him prove it all season long. You know, I want to follow that up with something I don't have written down and prepared, but I recently saw one of those Kevin Durant, uh, my next step or my, uh, the, the article he wrote for the Players Tribune, the meme that always pops up whenever players, whenever a team is doing well, uh, and it's, and Kevin Durant, the bandwagon that he is, is ready to join them. And for the first time in my life, I saw a Kevin Durant 49ers, uh, meme. So, if that doesn't indicate where things are headed, I don't know what does. It's definitely an exciting time to be a 49er fan again. Corey, what do you have for us? J.D. Martinez! Is it four? It's gone! J.D. Martinez homers in four consecutive plate appearances at Dodger Stadium. And the Diamondbacks are beating up L.A. It's 13 to nothing. The Boston Red Sox entered the offseason searching for a middle-of-the-lineup bat to add to an offense that hit the fewest home runs in the American League in 2017. They came away with all-star slugger J.D. Martinez. The team's likely designated hitter signed a five-year, $110 million contract making him one of the highest paid players in Red Sox history. 
Boston has been known for its aggressive spending over the years, but the majority of their biggest signings have failed to meet the expectations that their salaries command. In fact, I would argue that the last big money free agent the Red Sox signed that was worth the price was 2004 World Series MVP Manny Ramirez, who signed an eight-year, $160 million deal way back in 2001. Yes, the Red Sox three recent World Championship teams had their fair share of star players, but almost all of those stars were either developed by the team or came over through trades or smaller free agent contracts. Through his first two seasons, David Price has not stayed healthy enough nor avoided off-the-field distractions to be worth the historic $217 million deal he signed before the 2016 season. Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford didn't even last two years in Boston before being traded away in the midst of a 93-loss season. Pablo Sandoval was disgraced by Boston fans and media before being outright released in July with nearly $50 million remaining on his contract. And Haley Ramirez is likely headed to a platoon role at first base this season after sandwiching a respectable 2016 with two below-average campaigns. Even the guys who were part of World Series winning teams, J.D. Drew, Daisuke Matsuzaka, and John Lackey, weren't spectacular given what they were paid. Drew was nearly booed out of town in 2007 before putting together a few decent seasons to end his career. Daisuke went 18-3 in 2008, but registered more than 12 starts in a season just once in his final four years with the team. And Lackey was a great story in 2013, but only after being heavily associated with the September collapse in 2011 and missing the entire 2012 season with an injury. Saying all this isn't a knock against Martinez. He's coming off a monster 2017 season and has been statistically one of the best hitters in baseball the past four seasons. Maybe he'll put together some more MVP caliber seasons in Boston and help deliver the team another World Series title. Or maybe his power numbers will regress or he'll be plagued by injuries, and the Red Sox will be left to go out and find the next high-profile free agent that they will inevitably overpay. History certainly suggests that it will be the latter. Alright, so that's all we have for you today. Uh, Thank you for listening to the second Ben and Corey podcast. Uh, we we took a, a little longer than we expected to get this one out to you, but the expectation is that as you know, NFL free agents start to sign, the tournament starts to heat up, baseball season gets underway, the NBA playoffs and the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, begin, we're going to have more and more of these to get out to you. Yes, especially, I mean, if you're hearing this right now, you've made it this far, we appreciate you so much. Uh, don't be afraid to, uh, you know, tweet at us or comment. Uh, my my Twitter handle is fourth and Ben at the number four T H and Ben. And uh, I, sorry, keep going. <laughs> well, I I'm sure if you're listening to this, you know us, so you probably yeah. already know our Twitter handles. Yeah, most likely. Um, so my my Twitter handle is at C Novotny nine fifteen. That's C N O V. O-T-N-Y-9-15. Uh, not as big of a Twitter user as Ben, but 
the the links to these podcasts will certainly be shared on my Twitter account, my Snapchat, uh, maybe eventually my Facebook if I really want uh, some of my family members uh, listening to this. Uh, and uh, hopefully we can continue to go grow the exposure to this. Like I said, we're already available on Apple Podcasts. We're going to hope to get to you on Spotify as well. Uh, so just keep looking forward to more of these. And uh, that, that's all we have. So, Ben, any, any parting thoughts? Do not sleep on the 2018 San Francisco 49ers. I think that's going to be a big theme every time I ask. Or Creighton. <laughs> or Creighton. <laughs> All right. So, thanks, everyone. I reminisce for a spell, or shall I say think back 22 years ago to keep it on track The birth of a child on the 8th of October A toast, but my granddaddy came sober Count all the fingers and the toes Now I suppose you hope the little black boy grows 18 years younger than my mama But I really got beaten with the girl of drama In single parenthood, there I stood By the time she was 21, had another one This one's a girl, let's name her Pam Same father as the first, but you don't give a damn Irresponsible Plain not thinking Papa said chill But the brother keep winking Still he won't down You would tear out your hide On your side While the baby make us slide But mama got wise to the game The youngest of five kids Hun, here it is After ten years Without no spouse Mama's getting married In the house Listen Positive over negative For the woman a master Mother queens rise In the chapter Deja vu Tell you what I'm gonna do When they reminisce Over you My God My God